I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome, Closer Nation. Coming at you live on Friday, August 2nd, to talk to you about one big idea. Something that's been weighing on me that I've talked about a million times with many, many individuals, but I wanted to just kind of formally get on the record. It's an idea that I want to quantify and hopefully provide a lot of clarity that maybe some folks haven't had on up to this point by putting some language around it. And that is this. The idea is that your leads are not a growth strategy. Where you get your leads from, how many leads come in is not a growth strategy. I've been in this industry for a minute. I've been talking about lead generation for over a decade. And the conversations that I still have on a regular basis are, I want to grow, but I need more leads. It's this persistent, crusty belief that most folks just cannot seem to get past, equating lead gen with the growth strategy. And I get it. It's a tempting belief that if I just had more leads coming in, all of my problems would be solved. But that is true in the same way that the best way to build a fortune is to, to, to the best way to earn a small fortune is to start with a large fortune. It's true that if you cram enough inputs in, regardless of what you do with those leads, at the end of the day, there's likely to be some kind of output. Uh, but even beyond the fact that it's it's non-holistic, meaning it's not looking at your ability to actually convert those leads, it's ultimately a conflation of what is involved in making the growth flywheel actually turn. And I say that because at the end of the day, the gap is and always will be leadership. Growth isn't complicated. It's about how many conversations are you having? How can you get on the phone and get in front of as many human beings as possible in order to generate enough actual deals on the back end? So if we reduce growth down to it being a function of how can we get in touch with more people, then we got to ask the question, well, who are those people? Where do they exist? And what are the kind of conversations that you would want to be having with them? Most small businesses, property management or not, have very little vision for how they communicate about their products and about their services. And to the extent that they do have any vision, it is exclusively about products and services, not any ideas bigger than that. So, there's no doubt. If you're the best, the hottest property management company in your market, it definitely is a leg up from having a weak offering. But at the end of the day, good offering, bad offering, the consumer in large part can't really tell. You view what you do, what you do in a high def, high resolution kind of manner. The customer, by contrast, is looking at it and more like a cartoon. They have a very anemic skill set to actually parse out the nuance in the product offering to delineate between a good property manager and a bad property manager, and thus the importance of reviews. If I can't actually tell the meaningful nuance in property manager parlance speak, at least I could look at reviews and kind of crowdsource the decision making process. 
And yeah, we love to be dis- dismissive of Yelp and it's a scam and it's extortion, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the consumer is looking at reviews because they cannot assess the nuance of, of what's actually going on behind the scenes. What that highlights for me is that we need to be speaking the customer's language, which is human language. It's ideas and concepts and beliefs that are bigger than functional, literal service offerings. Um, so let's just pause right there. Let's just all acknowledge that if you don't have a story, if you don't have an idea or a concept that is bigger than you and bigger than your business that you are attaching yourself to, that you're committed to, that you believe in, and that you are trying to extend through the work that you do with your customers, you're already miles behind the competition. You've already commodified yourself. So don't complain when somebody wants to talk to you about it explicitly in terms of price. What's your management fee? How much do you charge? If you've given them no other buying criteria and no other means of grading what you do, then that's a pretty rational decision-making. When in doubt, at least reduce it down to price, at least protect my financial downside if I haven't been given any aspirational upside beyond that. So that's point one, the brand strategy. What is the message that you want to communicate to your audience? Ultimately, that's a function of what you're about. If you're not really clear on what you're about, if you're just in it to make money, if you're just in it to do the best, to to be the best widget maker, that's really going to handicap your ability to actually communicate and telegraph something interesting to the market. Now, let's say you have a message. Let's say you have something you're passionate about. You've really gotten clear on your core values, the things that actually work in favor of the consumer. These are are universal concepts and ideas. It's not a bumper sticker. It's one thing to remember your core values after you came up with them in a meeting 12 months ago. It's another thing to actually deeply and passionately believe these things in a way that it's it's something that your, your team members are really committed to because they keep coming back practicing the fruit from it. If you have not tasted the fruit of actually committing to core values and seeing the good that comes from it, unless you've tasted that fruit, the incentive that you and your staff has has towards it is going to be really weak and really limited. It's going to be intellectual as opposed to something that's just guttural that you intuit and that you realize that there's a virtuous circle associated with it. I do it because the good that I create comes back to me tenfold. If you have that figured out, if you're clear in what your core values are, if you've doubled down on those things, now we're talking about marketing as a communication strategy. I have an idea. I have positioning that I know works that I deeply believe in. And so now the question is, how do I get that out to the world? Is the best tool, is it blogging? Is it creating videos? Is it creating a podcast? What would be the most effective way for me to get this message out? Do you see how that is so different in tonality and intention as opposed to, well, what message? As opposed to, I don't have a message. I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but what activity can I check the box on in order to satiate like this, this process of marketing that I don't actually even want to be doing? That, that latter idea is where sad video blogging, half-assed blogs come from. The intent wasn't to actually add value. The intent wasn't to create something compelling. The intent was not to produce something that I would actually, as a consumer, want to consume. 
I'm just trying to check a box. I'm trying to manipulate a search engine. I'm trying to come out on top of the ranking. So first and foremost, it comes back to intent. Are you trying to add value in the market or are you trying to come up with a hack to exploit the search engine algorithm so you can actually get something back from it? That's where it starts for me, 100%. I don't have to be doing this this podcast, right? I could just not. I could go, could go run pay-per-click pay-per-click ads instead. I could sub out getting on the phone with customers. I could hire VAs to do all this stuff. I do it because I care. I enjoy it. I have something to say. And when I don't, I want to have the pressure to sit and think about having a message and then propagate that out to the market. I want to be graded against the litmus test of, am I creating value? Is it interesting? Guys, I have multiple business partners. You know that. I work across three different, four, five, six, I think it's actually six different businesses. But I have business partners in a handful of those. Those business partners have really different temperaments and beliefs. And so I've had points of friction and points of celebration, high points and low points in my relationships. Here's a low point. Dealing with one, one business partner or actually probably multiple business partners that have had this idea that <laughs> being told things like this, Jordan, we don't market, you know, we're not doing any marketing, which is another way of saying you're not doing any marketing because generally I bear responsibility for that. Guys, you know me, you know, you've seen my career to, to hear that we're not doing any marketing was frustrating, but also mind blowing in this person's eyes. All of this activity, doing events, speaking, masterminds, podcasts, all of that wasn't marketing. Oh, that's creating goodwill, you know, interesting, <laughs> creating a, a deep level of customer connection, brand awareness, but no, that's not marketing. In this person's mind, they had reduced marketing down to this skill set of uh, ebooks, downloads funnels, all that stuff that is interesting and I'm passionate about, but they had no vision for the bigger picture concept of marketing being a function of, here's what marketing is to me. It's taking a message and a product offering and pairing it with an eager audience. These are the basic elements. You have no, no, no hungry audience, then it doesn't really matter what you're selling. If the product offering sucks, you're screwed. You can't knock out one of the legs of a three-level, three-legged table. If your message is weak and all you have is product, then you're basically just a vanilla offering that has no distinguishment that's ready to be commodified. When you're thinking about these activities, I just want you to think like are what has been your intent in the way that you relate to marketing to date? Has it been about adding value for the consumer? Like if they buy nothing from you, are you committed to actually creating value for your audience, for your prospects? Or do you do things, do you do these things solely with the intent to actually sell stuff? The latter sounds reasonable. And at the end of the day, whatever your sales and marketing budget is, it needs to actually produce results in terms of ROI. But what you start with and your intent is so determinative of the quality of the offering that you produce. If, you're, if your commitment is to produce value, you've got to engage in the creative act. You've got to stretch yourself. You've got to know the problem better than the consumer does and be able to regurgitate back to them. 
regurgitated back to them. You have to be able to really sit in asking yourself, what is a bigger conversation than what we sell? So that is always my starting point for thinking about marketing is what is the messaging component? But let's talk a little bit more about that lead gen strategy, right? I said at the outset that your lead gen strategy is not your growth strategy. You can't conflate the two. So when we talk about APM versus pay-per-click, et cetera, versus going after furbos, you know, all those things are, are interesting, turning leads on and off. I, I don't even think of individual lead providers as being has as have any anything to do with marketing really i mean that's just a way to flip on some leads and hopefully you can you can can close them but that's like so low level in terms of the actual strategy behind growth so i'm all for analyzing your results on a channel by channel basis i just want to highlight a couple of scenarios and conversations that came up recently around growth that, that will help me kind of speak to some of my thoughts on growth had one recently a client is spending thousands of dollars each month on pay-per-click. It's not working. Frustration. Have the conversation and the client says, you know, I'm spending all this money and not getting a lot of return. We dive into the lead simple account and actually parse out what's happening. Well, the first thing that came up was the client was looking at the entirety of the leads that they were getting each month and associating those with pay-per-click and saying, I'm unhappy. Come to find out when we actually parsed it out, the leads that he was getting that were just coming from pay-per-click were a fraction of his overall leads, which means the situation was even more bleak. His cost per lead was even higher. So guys, you have to parse out your results on a per-channel basis. Now, some of those things are challenging, like SEO. What's the, what is the cost allocation for SEO? Well, first off, you're talking about your website. And second off, you're talking about the labor and the time spent to produce blogging or whatever organic marketing that you're doing. So I'm all about being accountable. You absolutely have to assign labor to as a component in addition to advertising to any per channel strategy that you're executing. And you also want to think about labor when you're looking at your cost per deal. So your cost per lead is distinct from your cost per signed contract. And your cost per signed contract absolutely needs to factor in your sales marketing labor, not just advertising. So parse out, get clear. Second conversation I had was about conversion rates. Oh boy, did I love talking about conversion rates as of five years ago. Done it a million times. It's, it's interesting. It is certainly a way to delineate the impact being driven by marketing versus the, the impact being driven by sales. So you definitely want to peel back the onion. But here's the problem in talking about conversion rate. When we focus on sales, when we graduate from saying that it's just about the leads to, to actually beginning to care about sales, we tend to immediately go straight to conversion rate as if it's the be-all, end-all. It certainly is a, a very useful yardstick. But you know what it ignores is the bottom line reality. The bottom line reality is, are you able to set sales targets and hit them? period. Are you able to set a target for growth and hit it on a consistent basis? If you can, fantastic. I'm excited for you. The world is your oyster. Challenge yourself. Raise the targets. If you can't, conversion rate is just one component and piece of this. If you hire a new BDM, 
and that and you uh, fire up and, and spin up a new marketing campaign. If you are not able to hit your growth targets, conversion rates are cer- certainly something to look at. But the big holistic picture is, can you hit your targets consistently? And if not, why not? So what else? What else about the conversion rate? What else, what else about it feels small when people reduce down the sales conversation to that? Uh, well, one thing is, how are we calculating the conversion rate? Are we looking at it based on all leads or are we cherry picking, right? This is the classic owner that says, I convert 90% of my leads, but they're really dismissing a bunch of leads that would otherwise be considered valid and or they're only talking about the folks that they actually met with in person on site, which is obviously going to skew, skew the numbers in favor of the owner. The other thing is your conversion rate could be artificially high because you don't have an aggressive lead gen strategy. You're saying my conversion rate is, is really high. I'm a stone cold, stone cold closer, but you're only talking about that in relation to referrals. Whereas if you really want to grow, you are going to have to look at lead sources like all property management, pay-per-click, um, wherever you can get them. And at, when you do that, the lead, the conversion rate is naturally going to, to come down. So conversion rate is one component of the conversation. It is not the be-all, end-all because there are ways that it can be manipulated. So bottom line, success or failure is, are you able to consistently set a sales target and hit it? Last conversation I had recently on the topic of growth was... I'm on the phone with an owner and they're struggling with growth. They have been struggling. This is a historic year plus problem that we've kept butting up against. And this is, this is a friend. This is somebody I'm close with. And of course, they wanted to go right back to the lead problem. I need more leads. I need more leads. Now I know having firsthand contacts with this person that they can't, they can't sell. Sales is broken. They have no formal process with sales. They've clowned around with BDMs in the past, having no infrastructure. They're basically hiring the person at the cheapest labor rate possible, throwing them into a scenario with no training, no oversight, and then either wondering why it didn't work or then emphatically telling other people that hiring BDMs doesn't work. Boy, have we all seen this story play itself out over and over and over again. Instead of blame yourself, blame the medium. I tried pay-per-click. It doesn't work. I tried all property management. It doesn't work. I tried growth and it doesn't work. I tried BDMs and it doesn't work as opposed to, well, you know what? I did it, but did I have the right strategy? Was I really aggressive and as intentional in my growth strategy as I am with ops? In this case, I know the answer was no. My suggestion was, let's invest in the sales function. Let's operationalize it. Just like I've seen you do on the ops side with systems, processes, uh, on the finance and on the money side, targeting a certain revenue per unit and hitting that number to increase bottom line profit. For most small businesses, there is so much focus and obsession with ops and it leads into the delusion that if you build it, they will come. But when it comes to sales and marketing, it's a necessary evil. It's a means to an end. It's a nag, not a source of joy. And it's really not something that's meant to create value. It's just this act we go through in order to grow. That was the case here, specifically on the sales function. But at the end of the day, in the face of persistent failure, the conclusion was, I got it. We'll figure it out. I can do it. And you know what it speaks to for me? 
I'm really clear on this. What it speaks to for me is that most small businesses fundamentally do not respect disciplines outside of ops. I'll get to sales in a minute, but before that, branding, creative work, design work, not respected, commodities, finance. Most small businesses do not respect the finance function. Most small businesses do not respect the marketing function, but the sales function especially is under massively underappreciated and just disrespected. Like what is sales? Well, you get on the phone, you tell somebody what you do, you follow up with them, you send them the contract. That's it, right? How, how complicated could it be? That's sales in a nutshell. Guys, sales is so much bigger than that. Sales is your positioning, the crafting of the offer, the knowledge of what the market is looking for, what you're uniquely capable of doing, what you want to do, what actually makes money combined for a coherent, compelling offering that you genuinely believe in and that you can communicate with, pers with persuasion along with your staff. Sales is about the conversation of understanding objections, responding with them and responding in light of your unique positioning. You take the same objection, it should be handled 10 different ways based on your unique positioning, based on what you believe in, based on your personal flair. To genericize that and to believe that a, a one-time generic script is actually an effective way of selling is to commodify yourself. If, if you can genuinely use a, a generic sales uh, script to effectively sell, it's a commentary on the fact that you are effectively a commodity. There's not a whole lot unique to talk about. My clients, my clients that I've personally worked with to generate sales playbooks for have deep responses and positioning that they're able to make work because they believe in it because it was tailored for them and because they invested the time in actually thinking through these things. Sales is about when you hire that BDM and you hire that BDM not because you didn't want to do it or and not because you're too busy, but because you've actually built infrastructure to plug somebody into sales is about plugging that person into an onboarding process that recognizes where they're at today, where they need to get to, what is likely to occur for them during that onboarding process, uh, and making that a win uh, within the first week. Within the first week, if you hire a staff person into maintenance or into leasing, that person should be able to be autonomous by the end of the week. It doesn't mean that they're going to be killing it. It doesn't mean that they're going to be blowing it out. But there should be enough momentum that at the end of the first week, they should be able to act uh, autonomously, still needing more training, still needing more coaching, and not at, at peak production by any stretch of the imagination. But we tend to not have that in sales. And we tend to just say, it's okay. They're going to be an expert. Like if they're good, they're good, right? They'll presence themselves. They'll have energy, pizzazz, uh, the ninja, voodoo, pick your metaphor. Whereas in reality, 
What they need is ongoing training protocol that comes out of a bigger onboarding process. Sales is about hiring the right person on the front side. There's nothing more painful to me than hearing somebody say, I found a rock star. They just fell into my lap. I couldn't, I couldn't but hire them. What, what that translates to, to my ear is, I fear the hiring process here. I don't know what I'm hiring for. I can't predict it. And wouldn't it just be convenient to, to hire somebody based on temperament, skill set, and their ability to, to sell me as opposed to having to actually force myself to get really clear on what that temperament actually looks like. The latter is hard. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes looking for a track record. It takes a overall skill set for the role and temperament relative to what you're capable of managing relative to your specific uh, sales structure, right? Is this person inbound? Are they outbound? Are they co-selling with you? As well as lastly, what is the temperament of the organization and the actual product offering that you have to sell? So it's nuance and tension. I don't want to make it sound like it's rocket science, but there's nuance and there's intention that goes along with it. Lastly is the comp model, right? Most SMBs in light of their lack of investment in the sales function, try to de-risk by paying less, seems like a sensible strategy, tends to wind up in disaster. What it communicates is, I don't have a lot of respect for this role. Um, you know, point one, right? Talented salespeople are consistently and always employed and most likely they're not going to work for you. They're not going to, they may not want to work for me because they're getting paid a quarter million dollars, half a million dollars working for a pharmaceutical company. So you're already on a really uneven playing field when hiring a BDM in light of those circumstances. You have to acknowledge that. You have to have clarity about what the role is. There's different approaches. I think about guys like Brandon Skolton, Key Renter Denver, that read the book, The Machine by Justin Rothmarsh. We talked about it. I, I introduced him to Justin by having him on the podcast. He was inspired and his approach was to segment out the sales role, to keep the in-person meetings and to hire somebody that was more in a high-touch customer liaison kind of capacity that would handle the initial phone call, all of the follow-up, all of the meeting schedule, the paperwork, the signing, and the handoff to the ops person doing onboarding. But... Brandon wanted to hold on to the actual in-person meetings for a period of time. Now, I think he actually may have modified that strategy as of now, but that worked really well because he was clear what he was getting into. Another massive distinction is inbound versus outbound. It's really painful for me to hear folks. Just a couple of different thoughts that are painful. Number one is I hired the BDM and then afterwards, after I hired the BDM, I realized and come to the conclusion that I don't have enough leads to actually keep them busy. Yikes. Yikes. Do you want to actually look at capacity and your utilization rate based on lead flow before you hire? Secondarily, if you come to that conclusion after you've made the hire, it's equally as painful to realize, well, we don't have enough leads to keep them busy. And I don't feel like I, if I don't feel like I can augment that through turning on pay-per-click or paid advertising, well, I guess I'll just have them hunt part of the time. Well, how does that work? How, how do they just hunt? I, I can tell you one way that it works, that if you're listening to this as an owner, you can relate to. It's what you did when you got in the business, beating the street pounding the payment, being in realtor's office, having that steely-eyed desperation, this better work, I will make this work because I need to feel myself. I need to feed myself. Guess what? 
Your BDM ain't going to have that. (laughs) Your BDM is not going to have this guttural desire and will to win that will override and compensate compensate for a lack of game plan, a lack of strategy, a lack of metrics and KPIs because they're not the owner. They don't, they don't need that. They, the self-actualization is not involved. There are other ways that they can feed themselves. They're not pursuing the dream and the vision of building a company so they can have a big staff and, and own the equity. So you, gotta, you cannot ask them to manifest themselves in the way that you did when you first got into the business. It's an unfair comparison because the reward, the temperament, and the desire is different. Now, here's a different way that you could prospect. A different way of prospecting is to have a really clear, well-laid-out strategy about how you approach realtors. You could, you could uh, employ a Dream 100 strategy. We're helping people do that right now with RentScale. Dream 100, if you don't know about it, is a really intentional game plan for getting clear on who your top 100 prospects are and having a balls-out strategy to wow them on day one and to stay after them until either they die, you die, or they become a client. That is a massively different strategy than just saying, hey, here's a list of realtors. I'm going to make some intros. I want you to go after them and to build relationships. The number of people that are going to nod their head to that versus actually understand it, take, account- take accountability, build out a strategy around it, there's a massive gap. So it's easy for us as owners to go along with and to be sold by the salesperson signing up for things that they're not actually capable of doing. All right, man, I think about that's about all the rant that I have in me for this topic. But I want you to remember your lead strategy is not a growth strategy. Your growth strategy is your core value strategy. It's, it's your communication strategy. It's your infrastructure and your op strategy for growth. If you don't believe that the level of economic productivity associated with sales and marketing is disproportionately higher relative to an hour of your time applied to ops, then you're not going to make the kind of investment that I'm talking about. If you do believe that, you will. You're my people. I love those of you that are stepping up in a big way. I love those of you that have woken up and have realized that, hey, there's value in it. The second level is you graduate to spending money on it. The third level is you graduate to, to making it accountable and perform. The fourth level is that you realize that this is the the means and the mechanism by which you will communicate to the market your values, which requires you to have values, which requires you to educate and get your team excited about those values. And that marketing is about putting that message into the universe and having it come back to you. This is Jordan Muela signing out. For those of you wondering when another podcast is going to come, I'm hoping it's it's next week, getting back on the train. You can also check out the podcasting that I've been doing super consistently while I've been on hiatus here over at Tribe Mastermind, tribemastermind.com, or you can look up Tribe Mastermind on your podcast vehicle of choice. I'm doing consistent weekly episodes with Steve Wealthy, completely different format. It's not interviews. And we're talking about business, but we're also talking about a lot of just big life stuff, things that I'm personally interested in in the entrepreneurial journey that Steve and I are on. So different flavor, but some of y'all will vibe with it. Um, I'm super stoked about the grill off that we're going to be hosting. Rent Scale is going to be hosting a grill off at NARPM National 
this is going to be a serious competition amongst serious carnivores. Those of you that are going to be at NARPM National, check it out. It's going to be a big bash. There's going to be a lot of cook-off and a lot of trash talking between now and then. Hope you guys are doing well. See you on the flip side. Talk soon.